I'm Al Cresta. On Saturday, May 17, 1924, Notre Dame's off-campus students awoke to the strange sight of men in white robes directing traffic from every South Bend street corner. The students had been anticipating the rally for weeks. Nonetheless, it was shocking to see men in the famous robes and hoods standing in the streets of South Bend in broad daylight, American flags on their cars, Maltese crosses on their chests. As their brethren poured in from the hinterlands, the clansmen on the streets courteously directed them to the park where they were to gather. Still rubbing their eyes, the Notre Dame men drifted out of their apartments and boarding houses. Outside, they overheard conversations confirming that the clan was planning to parade through town, permit or no. The Notre Dame men, curious and somewhat angry, watched as clansmen filled the streets of the city. They wondered how the first beautiful day of the year would end. Those words are taken from Notre Dame versus the Klan, how the fighting Irish defeated the Klan by historian Todd Tucker. Todd is the author of several books, uh, a veteran of the U.S. Submarine Force, a Notre Dame graduate himself, and joined us uh, a few years ago uh, to discuss this topic. And it's great to have you back, Todd. Thanks. Thank you, Al. What's it been, 16 years or so? It, has it been that long? <laughs> yeah, I think so. That book came out in 2004 originally, oh, so something wow. like that, yeah. Yeah, well, it's great to have you back. I'm glad you were able to make it. Um, this, I mean, I'll ask the question that I know you've been asked a million times. How come this story is not better known in spite of the great work you've done? Um, yeah, I, I do get asked that a lot. Even in Indiana, where you think it might be better known, I think um, it's it's not well known. I think one of the reasons is that that kind of people on both sides of the riot, like uh, you know, didn't see this as anything to brag about. I mean, in, in the in the initial days right after the riot, um, Notre Dame really took a beating uh, in the publicity, and they were seen as kind of out of control. It was. Uh, seen as supportive of a lot of stereotypes about about uh, immigrants, especially Irish immigrants. So the university had kind of uh, no desire to publicize this. And then, of course, the Klan, you know, fell apart in Indiana very rapidly soon after that. So I think that kind of nobody, nobody in the years immediately after it had a, had a stake in kind of mythologizing the whole story. Hmm. You know, I, I was uh, combing around looking uh, in old archives, and I found this picture of the Klan with the headline, Students Route Klansmen. And uh, it was apparently in the Chicago Herald back on May 18th of 1924. It's a shocking picture. You've got these hooded Klansmen, one on the, the riding mm -hmm. board of a car, another one following him. Um, how big an event was this at the time, May 17th, 18th, 19th? Of 24. The, how big an event was the riot? Uh, I mean, how, uh, how the... the yeah the publicity. How well known was it, it was at big. the time? It was it was really it was really big because the the clan many saw that that the clan had intended to provoke um, a reaction from Notre Dame. So because when when there was a reaction and a riot, um, you know they pounced on it and showed this as evidence that you know these these 
uh, immigrant children and and uh, these Irish Catholics were kind of out of control, and uh, so it really um, to the to the Klan in Indiana, it was kind of a media opportunity. So they did all they could to publicize it in their own uh, publications, which were had significant circulation, and then the the mainstream press picked up on it as well. So it was it was widely publicized. How big was the Klan in Indiana at the time? It was it was big everywhere in the United States in the twenties. As we are hearing about more and more about that these days, but in Indiana, it really reached its peak. Uh, by many measures, by percent of the population, and certainly uh, by the political power that the Klan held, it, it definitely reached its zenith in Indiana, where you know the governor of Indiana, Ed Jackson, was an avowed Klansman. The entire Indianapolis City Council, uh, it, it absolutely reached its its pinnacle in in the state. You know. When people think of uh, the Klan, they think, of course, normally of the South, and they think of the lynching of blacks. And uh, uh, did they do any lynching of blacks in Indiana? It, I mean, it's, it was certainly a racist organization, but the D.C. Stevenson, who you know from reading the book, was kind of the mad genius behind the right. the Klan in Indiana. He he saw it as a more kind of effective selling point, as many did in the Klan, to sell the Klan as a, as an anti-immigrant organization, especially in the North. That was uh, a much perceived as a much more immediate threat and, and kind of got the Klan, um, you know, more members, more money, more power by, by appealing to that, um, to appealing to that particular insecurity. Hmm. So, uh, what what was the so the selling was uh, were being overwhelmed by these uh, immigrants, many of whom were Catholic. They're not they're not real Americans. They're not pure Americans. They've got a uh, a foreign ruler that they have ult- they are ultimately pledged to. Is that was the was that the argument? It was part of it. There were a lot when you when you read kind of the anti-immigrant literature from back then, you see that. The, the words kind of communist, uh, alcoholic, and immigrant, and Catholic were kind of all used interchangeably. It was presumed mm-hmm. that all these immigrants were Catholic and that they were all intemperate. And uh, so all, all those things were seen as a threat to kind of the, the Protestant status quo. Yeah, that was a, that's true. That was a time where the Protestant, white Protestant hegemony uh, over American culture was being displaced, or at least the the more uh, theologically and politically conservative uh, Protestants were. Right? I mean, you had the you had the Scopes trial in 1925, which is often pointed to as a turning point in the fundamentalist modernist controversy. Um, were we in the we were in the yeah, middle of prohibition then, right? Yeah, I mean, and prohibition's one of the, an important strand in the story. I mean, prohibition when it was passed a lot. A lot of the campaign on behalf of, of uh, prohibition was a it was a kind of an anti-immigrant um, logic used there, and the Klan that was a big part of their platform was that they would defend prohibition. Um, so yeah, I mean prohibition's an, an important kind of plank of the of the story of the anti-immigrant story. Uh- so who were the the primary antagonists here? You had Stevenson the Grand Dragon uh, of the Klan in that area. 
you had the leadership at Notre Dame. Was that was Father Walsh? Mm-hmm. What was he like? Yeah, those were at least as I, I set up in the book. Those are kind of the two uh, the two antagonists. D.C. Stevenson, who I mentioned, who was the grand dragon of the Indiana clan. And then Father Matthew Walsh, um, and it's it's important when you when you study a history of leadership at Notre Dame, all these great Irish names right there. There are two <laughs> Walshes, two that were present at Notre Dame, and there are also two Kavanaughs. So you have to make sure that you're you're looking at the right one. But Father Matthew Walsh was was the president of Notre Dame at the time. He was kind of a Vunderton coming up. He came up through the Notre Dame system. Joint, you know, he was at the seminary in his teens. He was one of the first PhDs to kind of be a product of the the Holy Cross system there. He was when he was vice president of the university. He uh, took a leave of absence and went away to fight in World War One as a Catholic chaplain, um, and then came back and uh, eventually became president. So he was a historian by training, uh, mm-hmm. but was a, a the president of Notre Dame at the time. How old was he when he was president? When he started? Oh, uh, you got me on that one, Al. I don't remember his exact yeah. age, but he was—he was—he was young. Yeah, and and Stevenson was he young as well? He was slight. He yeah, I mean, he was slightly older. I think he was in his forties. His it, a lot of D.C. Stevenson's background is a little bit mysterious, but okay. yeah, he was. You can tell from the pictures in the murder trial, he was—he was not an old guy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He—that's that murder trial is something too. Gee. Um, Tell me uh, about the students. I mean, how did you? How did you have access to their conversation, their mind? How much uh, is there? Are there transcripts around? How did you get to know what they were thinking? Well, believe it or not, uh, at, at, when I wrote the book, the book was originally published in two thousand four. Uh, but I had been working on it for years before then. So when I was doing the research, there were a couple of students. Uh, a, a couple of people who'd been students at the time that were still alive. Um, so I was able to interview them and then all the kind of contemporary writing, the letters, um, stories they told the descendants. That was a big part of it. Um, but yeah. Okay. Um, Notre Dame, we, you know, when we think of Notre Dame today, we think of this incredibly stable institution with a remarkable endowment. Notre Dame was still struggling at that time, wasn't it? Yeah, I mean, it was, it was uh, you know, it was in a precarious place for much of its early history. Like when you, if you study the history of Notre Dame, there's a lot of fires, a lot of, <laughs> a lot of uh, financial turmoil, uh-huh. uh, right up until about this point. Like that was, the, the 20s were a real turning point. Uh, that, that, that year was such a pivotal year for Notre Dame, the year of the riot, the year after that was when Newt Rockney um, won his first national championship. And that's when things you know, finally started to happen. But yeah, I mean, it was definitely, you know, like a lot of colleges, it was, it was in a tough spot uh, during the depression and, and, and before. Uh, speaking of Newt Rockney, um, what's the, you know, we have this famous story of uh, George Gipp and uh, the story attributed to Rockney that, you know, he had that uh, win one for the Gipper. Is that a on his solid historical ground? <laughs> I, I think it's uh, uh, it's probably more solid as uh, a myth in uh, history, but yeah, it was uh, that was before that was pre pre riot. 
Yeah. Okay, that was before the riot that that incident happened. And um, uh, Rockne ended up becoming, becoming a Catholic, too, right? Yeah, he converted. Uh, he converted. Uh, uh, he had. He was coach before that. He converted during his tenure as coach. Okay. Okay. Um, I want to come back. On, we're going to have to take a break in just a minute here. But I want to come back and continue talking about the dynamics uh, of the clan and actually talk about the plan for that day, what their stated objectives were, mm-hmm. and how soon. How soon were the students aware that the Klan was coming? Was this, did they know this a month in advance? So hold it there if you would, Todd. Talking with historian Todd Tucker, Notre Dame versus the Klan. How the Fighting Irish defeated the Ku Klux Klan. I'm Al Cresta, we'll be back in just a moment. Last week at AveMariaRadio.net's Poll of the Week, we wanted to know if you thought there were ethical problems with using cell phone data in journalistic investigations. 60% of you said yes, 20% of you said no, and another 20% said that you were unsure. Thank you to all who filled out the poll, and if you didn't last week, check out our new poll now, available at AveMariaRadio.net. Just scroll down on our homepage and click Poll of the Week. Good afternoon, I'm Al Cresta. With me, Todd Tucker. He is author of Notre Dame versus the Klan, and we're discussing this remarkable event uh, over a few period, few days in uh, 1924. And before the break, we were talking about the students, and I am curious to know uh, how how were they primed or prepped for the coming of the Klan? Did they know about it? like a month in advance was this sprung on them um what were they anticipating uh they definitely knew about it it was well publicized these rallies were a, a very effective technique for the indiana clan to gain new members uh so they they had had them across the state at the time south bend was the biggest city in the state of indiana that they had not had a rally in hey and al i want to get back to you on these I looked this up during the break. At the yeah, time sure. of the riot, D.C. Stevenson was 33, and Matthew Walsh was 42. So they're both pretty young guys. Young guys, so yeah. 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 Okay. Um, so the, ki- the kids were aware of this. Did they have they a, well, a well-articulated plan to deal <laughs> with the Klan? <laughs> uh, no, I, I would not say that. And the, okay. the administration and Father Walsh, you know, they saw trouble coming from a mile away, so they issued directives about staying on campus and staying away. But one, one curiosity of this, I think, for pe- especially for people that know Notre Dame, Notre Dame's recent history, is that at the time, the vast majority of Notre Dame students lived off campus in town. That is so interesting. It was, huh. it was, yeah, so it was much different than, than, you know, people know where there's kind of this bubble now at, at Notre Dame and has been for years um, most of the students were out in the community, so they couldn't stay on campus. You know, there was nowhere for them to stay on campus. So it was it was obvious this was going to be trouble. Uh, the administration did what it could, but the um, the response of the Notre Dame uh, men and they were all they were all uh, boys at that time, and as would be the case for decades after, 
Um, it was not organized. It was very much kind of organic and chaotic, um, just like you might expect. Yeah, yeah. There, there are two uh, particular incidents uh, in which they physically encounter one another. Describe the first for us. Well, there were there were two days. So the first day of the riot, uh, the Notre Dame students, uh, you know, the ones that weren't already in town, wandered into town, and and they kind of quickly seized the initiative. The, the Klansmen, who, like I said, these these rallies were a, a, a you know a frequent thing in Indiana. They they saw them almost as kind of like there was almost like a picnic or a county fair atmosphere. So yep, okay. They were, the the Klansmen were very much caught off guard. Uh, to be met by kind of, um, you know, angry or, you know, bellicose students. So, so the Notre Dame students managed to kind of preempt the parade that they were going to have, and they roughed up a few Klansmen, stole their robes. There's, you know, my, my favorite picture of this whole thing, which I put in the book, is a, is a Notre Dame sophomore wearing the posing in the clan robes that he stole on that first That's a great day. picture. That is a great picture. Yeah, it's really, really something. I Actually, as it turns out, like I was a classmate of that guy's grandson, and <laughs> I tracked him down, and they didn't know anything about it. Like, But, he, he, you know, he looks just like him. Uh, the family resemblance is strong. Wow. So, so the, the first day was kind of not only a kind of unqualified victory for the students in Notre Dame, but, you know, it's like just uh, kind of great fun was had by all right. uh, to the horror of the administration. You know, it, it was, uh, it was, uh, you know, everybody seemed to have the time of their lives. So that was day one. And it gave, you know, the clan a day to kind of regroup and plan their revenge. Oh, what happened? So there was a, uh, there was a, a day where nothing happened. So then two days after that, on May 19th, 1924, the Klan kind of, at that point, they'd regrouped and they understood kind of what they were up against. And they um, they planted a, a group of Klansmen downtown kind of ready with, you know, axe handles and pool cues. And then they called on campus to the one phone that was in uh, the freshman dorm and and said that uh, that they had one of the Notre Dame students, and he was getting roughed up. And the Notre Dame students, who by and large had the time of their lives two nights before, you know, they were all willing to do it again. So they they ran into town, but this time they were met by a, a group of clansmen that was already and kind of bent on revenge. So what what had kind of been, you know, a college student hijinks on the first first day at this point it became a really, really dangerous situation. And there mm-hmm. were shots fired. Uh, many of the people, uh, had, many of the Klansmen had firearms. There were shots fired. Uh, no one was shot on either side, but there were broken bones. And the situation was, was escalating rapidly. Those, the students uh, beat a, a retreat at one point, didn't they? They, they did, but it was, you know, it wasn't, nobody was, nobody on either side was prepared to back down. So it was, okay. it was quickly turning into a, a really ugly situation. And that's when Father Walsh personally went downtown and kind of pled with the students to, to come back to campus. And uh, it was a really dramatic moment in the book where he kind of stands atop this Civil War memorial and, 
and uh, tells the Notre Dame students that they need to return to campus for their own good and for the good of the university. And uh, they, by and large, did. Um, and uh, that was that was the end of the of the riot. Uh, definitely not the end of the the fallout. Wow. Uh, here's a fellow who was a World War One chaplain, and now he's standing uh, out of cannon talking to students at Notre Dame. I mean, uh, I, I can't imagine what was going through his mind, given the well, difference. Well, you, you can see, you know, you, know, you can see Father Walsh and, and plenty of Catholic Americans. Like, he could, they could really take this charge from the Klan very personally, that, like, Catholics couldn't be good Americans. I mean, Walsh right. had left a pretty com- pretty comfortable position as vice president of the university and gone to France, and he was gassed at the Second Battle of the Marne, and decorated so it was something that you know he could take very personally but i think walsh's first loyalty was clearly to the university and he knew that this was you know this was not a good look uh for notre dame what was the immediate fallout with the press and the police like i said i mean it was by and large um uh uh people saw notre dame the notre dame students as the aggressors and the uh you know that the, they came off. The, they came off looking the worst in the in the immediate press. Uh, Walsh got a lot of hate mail. Um, that he, I mentioned, Father Walsh was a historian by training, and I, when I was in the Notre Dame archives researching this, like he had kind of meticulously kept and filed every every hate letter that he got. It was really <laughs> interesting to go through wow. them. Yeah. So that was. So Notre Dame definitely came off looking worse, and there were there were a lot of kind of long term consequences. I, I, you know, w- one of the most visible ones is that the university did a, an abrupt change, and they no longer thought that their the Notre Dame students were safe living in the community, and so they embarked on a really ambitious building program, and basically all the buildings that now make up South Quad in Notre Dame. Uh, were built as a as a result of this in the years after, so they could bring and house the students back on campus because uh, they, the the administration no longer really trusted the community. They didn't trust the police, and they felt like they had to bring the students back on campus. Hmm. D.C. Stevenson, how did he tell the story? I'm sure he he had much to say about it. He did, and he had a very kind of active media arm. He had newspapers. Uh, and he had a big platform, so he he presented this as kind of an out of control mob, uh, you know, that was persecuting the the kind of the patriotic Klansmen, and very effectively kind of put that put that part of the story out there. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, what happens? Uh, what what's in the future for Stevenson. I know he ends up standing, getting convicted of murder, but how does that yeah. flow out of his, you know, does he remain the Grand Dragon for very long? It fell apart really quickly for him. So the riot was in May of 1924. In November of 24, uh, Stevenson's kind of handpicked candidate for governor in Indiana, Ed Jackson, was elected governor. So this, that was kind of the high water moment of, of Stevenson's power in Indiana. Um, but at the inaugural ball for Ed Jackson, uh, D.C. Stevenson met a young woman named Madge Oberholzer, who was a, a volunteer on Ed Jackson's campaign. 
and Stevenson ended up kidnapping her and keeping her prisoner on a train, and she eventually died from yeah. her injuries, and Stevenson was, was put on trial soon after in kind of the, the, the Indiana trial of the century. Um, he was eventually convicted, and when he went to prison, uh, Stevenson was certain. You can see the pictures I put up of his murder trial. He he has kind of a smug look about him and, yeah. And yeah, throughout the trial because Stevenson was, was certain that he had so much political power that whatever happened to him in the trial, he thought that you know he would be pardoned. Uh, but it didn't happen. His friends abandoned him. His uh, connections abandoned him after the conviction. So Stevenson... Had he had kind of sequestered incriminating papers about all these Indiana politicians all around the state, and from his prison cell, he uh, he organized the release of all these documents and kind of brought down brought down the governor, brought down the whole Indianapolis City Council. He was basically like, "If I'm going down, you're all going down with me." So um, that that really marked kind of the end of the Klan in Indiana. Did that the phase of the Klan? Did the press take the information from him? Did they publish it? Yeah, I mean, it was it was a spectacular story. I mean, he had all these stories about uh, all these political officials in the Klan, the, the money they'd taken from the Klan, so it was kind of an irresistible story um, <laughs> once it started to break. And, and it, was a, it was kind of a never... He had a... He, there was so much of it in Indiana that it was kind of this never-ending you know, font of, of sensationalism. So, yeah, it was a huge story and brought down a lot of politicians, including the governor. Yeah. Stevenson, uh, I mean, really sounds like a creep, uh, to, to put it mildly. Uh, you have a section of the book in which you actually uh, try to understand the psychology behind him. And uh, when we come back, I, I'd like to just have you describe for us uh, the psychological profile that uh, is in the book regarding the Grand Dragon of the Klan there for a year, D.C. Stevenson. I'm Al Cresta. We'll be right back with historian Todd Tucker. I'm Al Cresta. With me, Todd Tucker. He's author of Notre Dame versus the Klan, and we're taking a look at this remarkable 19, event of 1924, and also the fallout and the aftermath of it. Uh, did the Klan? Um, I, I want to come back to, to Stevenson, but I want to. When Stevenson went off the rails, did the Klan collapse in Indiana, or did he have a worthy successor? No, it, it collapsed, and that's uh, one of the questions I get all the time is, is you know, why was the Klan so much more successful in Indiana than it was anywhere else? And there's, right. there are a lot of theor- there are a lot of theories about why that may be the case. But I think I think the major factor was just that Stevenson was kind of the best salesman that the Klan had anywhere, and he happened to be in Indiana. So okay. when when and and not only that, so when he was in prison, that you know he wasn't able to do that. But then you know Stevenson really engineered the downfall of the clan i mean when he when he saw that his friends weren't going to kind of spring him from prison he yeah he made sure that uh you know that they were going to go down with him so yeah well he even became i mean he became involved with the clan because it was a good commercial opportunity for him right 
Yeah, I mean, certainly, you know, when you when you look at how Stevenson ended up in prison and the just the horrific details behind the murder of Madge Oberholzer, you know, there's no question he was a violent psychopath. But yeah. up to that point in his story, I mean, he really seemed much more motivated by money than anything else. I mean, he was he was much more motivated by money than he was a uh, you know an ideological racist or anti-Catholic. Right. Those those seem to be a means to an ends for him to to make money, and he made a fortune. I mean, he made an absolute fortune selling these clan memberships. <laughs> I mean, this is uh, you you had, you spent some time trying to get a profile of him and and place him. Um, th- was he a psychopath? In, in your best judgment, and the best judgment of the people you consulted with? Yeah, I, I think he was. I mean, I think that. Uh, you know, certainly, like I said, based on what we know about the murder of, of Madge, like he he was, uh, and and the experts I consulted with seem to agree. I mean, one of the when you read the professional literature about psychopaths, I mean, one of the things they often talk about is this kind of the supernatural charm, this ability to manipulate, um, and, and that was you know that is definitely a, a right on description of of DC Stevenson. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. No empathy, no conscience kind of thing? No empathy, no conscience, the superficial charm, you yeah. know, the, the ability to manipulate others like it was all there. Uh, let me ask you a question about, uh, going back a bit, to uh, George Gipp. There's no plaque for him uh at Notre Dame, no monument or anything. And yet he was an extraordinary college athlete, probably the greatest in the early years of Notre Dame. How come there's no recognition? Sure. Yeah. I think there is. I mean, I think there is now. I think at the time I wrote the book, they definitely hadn't reconciled all that. Oh, good. Um, he was he was the first kind of celebrity, you know, athlete at Notre Dame that was – uh, well before the the win-win for the Gipper speech was in 1920, which was well before um, Notre Dame's first national championship. So he was kind of the first nationally known figure uh, from Notre Dame. Yeah, and why um, he there was a talk of a deathbed conversion uh, to Catholicism. <laughs> And he yeah. came, he, but yeah, he, was a, he, was, he was raised Baptist, and his family remained rock-ribbed Baptists. Uh, how did he, that play that's out? Correct. He, he was from the Upper Peninsula of Michigan, uh, from a family of Baptists. Came to Notre Dame, and by all accounts, was kind of a, a hell raiser. Um, <laughs> there's there's several stories where I think it, on at least two occasions, wherever Notre Dame played its last away game. George Gipp would just stay there. <laughs> <Not certain camp. laughs> so he he was kind of a well known, you know, wild at heart. And uh yeah, when he when he died on his deathbed, the famous win one for the Gipper speech, the the uh the priest in attendance said that he, he expressed this desire uh, you know, on his deathbed to be converted to Catholicism and mm-hmm. When his family found out about this, they were outraged, and so they they ordered that there be kind of no memorial service, no funeral held for him on campus because they, you know, they 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 didn't believe it about the deathbed conversion. Yeah, yeah. What did, what did he die from? 
Um, I, I believe it was uh, like an advanced case of strep throat, which in oh yeah, you know, in nineteen in nineteen twenty, you know, could could be the end of you, obviously. Yes, yes, yes. You could go sep sepsis with that um, mm -hmm. back then. Wow. Um, okay, I got a question. I might have asked you this sixteen years ago too. So I'm gonna. It just it feels like I. You can repeat. It it feels like I've asked you this. Now I don't know if I have. We don't I, we don't we don't have to call this part two of the interview after 16 years. We can <laughs> we can cover some of the same ground again. Right, right. I this is this is such an extraordinary story, and it's a it's a great story for our own era. How come Hollywood hasn't picked it up? Um, I, that's a good question. I'm not not in the movie business. I mean, there's been a few um, there's been a few uh, inquiries uh, over the years, but yeah, I don't, I don't, I'm not sure. I, I definitely agree, and I mean, I think there's there's scenes in the book that are really cinematic, like this scene with Walsh giving that speech at the courthouse. Yeah, yeah. the big the the big clan rallies, and so mm -hmm. yeah, I mean, I you know. I'm definitely biased, but I think it, it would really make a great movie. Yeah, I mean, you've got, uh, you know, uh, students uh, willing to, you know, throw a fist with, in righteous indignation. Mm -hmm. You've got, uh, you know, right. uh, heroic uh, administrative leadership that's restrained, even though uh, they've seen battle. Uh, they know what's best for the school. You've got this crazy murdering, murderous heart uh, of Stevenson. And uh, you've right. got New Rockney in the background there, you know. Did Rockney have yeah. much to do with? Did he interact with the students? He did for sure. Yeah, he definitely interacted, and he was one of the ones that was kind of um, in the in the aftermath of the riot. He he advocated for you know staying calm and staying on campus uh, for sure. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, well, I'd love to see that happen. I don't know. I I don't have uh, Hollywood I connections too. I mean, either. I think it, <laughs> In terms of movies, I mean, one of the things that, you know, we all know makes a good movie a great movie is when you have a compelling villain, right? And, yep. You know, like like, like Hannibal Lecter, and then certainly yep. D.C. Stevenson is a really, really compelling villain. What he was able to accomplish and, the, you know, coupled with the, the horrors of, of his crimes is pretty pretty remarkable. Yeah, yeah. When I, uh, when I was researching the book, and I went to the... Indiana State Archives and uh, asked for the trial transcript, and they the the archivist said that the only only one only transcript she gets asked for more is the Mike Tyson trial. <laughs> All these years. Really? Later. Wow. Yeah. Wow. <laughs> That's something. Well, Todd, thank you so much uh, for joining me once thank again. Thank you. Thanks for and uh, uh, don't don't wait sixteen years before <laughs> you uh, have me on again. Let's do this again. I will. Thanks so much. Thank the you. Book Al. Is, thank, have a great day. YouTube. The book is called Notre Dame versus the Klan: How the Fighting Irish Defeated the Ku Klux Klan, and uh, the story is rich, uh, not only in the events that it focuses on, but it gives the background. So, I mean, you, you've got, again, Notre Dame is still a, a school that is not, it's not what it is today. Uh, it's, uh, again, it's, it's, it's trying to be uh, the premier Catholic school, but we're still in a time of American history, in the 1920s, with this extraordinary uh, anti-Catholicism. And so you've got, uh, of course, Catholic immigrants, 
um, and you've got them uh, dealing with what does it mean to be an American, and they're being accused of not being Americans because they have these uh, foreign loyalties to the Pope. It's a, it's really a fascinating uh, story, and uh, I really recommend it to you. And I, I uh, like I said, we talked years ago, and I, I don't know what brought this to my mind again recently, but I'm glad, I'm glad we did. Let me switch gears a little bit here. Uh, and go over to Psalm 55 for a minute, which is also a psalm dealing with real conflict. Um, but it's a different, a little bit different kind of conflict. You've got King David there in Psalm 55. And it's kind of a psalm for our times. He's fi- King David right now is facing the forces of anarchy. There's social breakdown. It's being, uh, the social breakdown's is part of the work of an agitating uh, oppress, uh, group uh, that are oppressing people. And this group is being led by former friends of David. And in the psalm, he says, I can see nothing but violence and strife in the city. He's talking about Jerusalem. I can see nothing but violence and strife in the city. Night and day, uh, these agitators patrol high on the city walls. Our streets are never free from tyranny and deceit. Now, of course, any good citizen of Jerusalem is going to be distressed. It's social breakdown. But David, of course, is king, and he's being directly challenged here. This is the city of David, and it's also, quote, God's city. Its walls are supposed to be the reassurance that the people uh, are safe. Those walls, and remember, those walls are wide. Those walls are not supposed to be parade grounds for rebels and terrorists. And so David writes, my heart is stricken within me. Death's terror is on me. Trembling and fear fall upon me and horror overwhelms me. This guy is distraught. And then he, of course, calls out, oh God, listen to my prayer. Do not hide from my pleading. Attend to me and reply. With my cares, I cannot rest. There's a very interesting move in that call. Uh, those, those words, uh, do not hide, are taken actually from Deuteronomy. And that's a recurring uh, phrase in the book of Deuteronomy. Uh, do not hide yourself. Do not hide yourself. And what it means in Deuteronomy, it's directed towards the children of Israel. And it's basically, they're being forbidden to, uh, they can't ignore a neighbor's predicament. So do not hide yourself from your neighbor's plight, however inconvenient. And that's what it means in Deuteronomy. David picks it up in Psalm 55, and he gives it to God, and he says, hey, um, do not hide yourself from me. You know, be consistent. You've told us not to hide ourselves from those who are in predicaments. Don't you hide yourself from me now. You are, after all, a merciful God. Oh, God, quote, Listen to my prayer, and do not hide yourself from my pleading, end quote. And it's in, David is really, like I said, he's distraught. It's so bad, in fact, that there's a little exit strategy that he has in the Psalm 55. He says, Oh, that I had wings like a dove to fly away and be at rest. So I would escape far away and take refuge in the desert, end quote. That's yeah, good to know that even spiritual giants have the same urge that we do sometimes. You know, we just want to get away. Take us out of this. Stop the world. I want to get off. David had the same thing. 
And, um, you know, we see it with Elijah in 1 Kings 19, Jeremiah chapter 9, same thing. These are men of great spiritual stature, but they're flawed men. Anyways, it's a great psalm, Psalm 55. There's a lot more to say about it, but uh, run out of time here. Uh, let me recommend it to you. I might return to it in the future because it is just so rich and so applicable to our own moments. I'm Al Cresta. Be right back. <laughs>